Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Back and remember, uh, around 12:30, we'll be talking to Michael Walsh, who is going to talk about his experience with uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And um, we'll be right back um, a little bit later. And um, hopefully, you'll stay tuned for that too. Opera Lulu, written uh, to a libretto by Frank Vatican. Uh, welcome to the menagerie. Welcome to the circus. Uh, the circus came to town. One year ago, roughly this week, well, definitely this week, one year ago in Berlin, Germany, uh, when the Berlin Wall came down, much to the surprise of everybody, uh, most especially our intelligence community and foreign policy establishment. Uh, so I'd like to congratulate my favorite intelligence agency, the CIA, for another job very well done, in which they told me over and over again that the Soviet Union was... Uh, the only other superpower uh, that would never be a reunification of Germany because neither the United States nor the Soviet Union would allow it. It was not in the best interests of liberty and freedom for the wall to come down. And that stasis, which was part of the policy of the first Bush administration, the status quo maintenance was more important than the lives of freedom and liberty of the people living behind the wall. And then much to everyone's surprise, the force of history took over. And almost overnight, the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union disappeared. I was fortunate enough to be there for all of this period. I had been going to <clears throat> East Germany since 1985, when I first crossed Checkpoint Charlie. And uh, I was in the Soviet Union in 1986, when uh, the great pianist Vladimir Horowitz returned to Russia and I was accompanying him as the music critic of Time magazine. While we were there, Chernobyl blew up. Uh, wherever I go, things happen. <laughs> uh, I like to say I, I was in Russia when Chernobyl blew up. I was in Berlin when the wall came down. What do you want changed in your life today? <clears throat> but all of this happened in a remarkably short space of time. I came back from Russia in 1986, and I went into the managing editor of Time, and. I said, uh, I think we've got this whole Russian thing completely wrong. This is a country that is on its deathbed, uh, and that I think Germany will be reunited within five years. This was 1986. Everybody laughed at me. And of course, I was way wrong. It was reunited in three years, not five. <clears throat> I want to just show you uh, a couple of films that we uh, are on loan from our uh, partners in Los Angeles, the Venda Museum. Venda, W-E-N-D-E, -E, means turning point in German. And so the time when the wall came down is referred to as die Venda, die Venda Zeit, the, the time of change. And I just want to show you uh, what it looked like. And this, um, this video here, as you can see, is Fahrtrainer Leipzig. So uh, Fahren means to drive or go. And uh, Fahrtraining is driver education. And this is, we'll show you what 
the city of Leipzig looked like uh, in the late 70s. Do we have the sound up? It's off on the TV. Yeah, it looks like it's a hundred here. But what <coughs> what this is, and uh, the sound isn't really going to add a lot to it. It's just a German voiceover teaching you how to drive a stick shift car. <coughs> uh, and as you see, it's got the that compelling spirit of communist cinema going full speed here. Uh, uh, oh, there goes a passing car. That looks like a Wartburg to me. Uh, I wish my friend Iowa Hawk were here because he is the world's greatest expert on cars. And he could identify, here's a Lada, here's a Trabi. Uh, these were the, the level of technology in the Soviet bloc at the time. So there's a woman pushing a baby carriage. That was cutting edge. Here we go. Lower your speed, he says. A little bit like looking at a time capsule. That means accelerate. Drive in third gear. And again, you see the, the automotive technology. Drive slowly forward. Yeah. Make sure you look to the right so no one's coming to get you. The reason he says that is important, because in, in Germany, uh, if two streets are equal, uh, one, if they're not equal, one will be marked by a yellow diamond. And if they are equal, traffic coming from the right will always have the right of way. So even though this appears to be a big main street and that's a cross street, these people coming from the right will actually have the right of way. And if you don't know that, you'll be in a lot of car accidents in Germany. Uh, some of them on purpose because they use it as an insurance scam. <coughs> but so he's, he's just driving around Leipzig here, and I, I thought you might like to see. Uh, what, what do we notice about this? Anyone have an observation? There's no traffic. And there was no traffic in Moscow in my time, and, or in, even in East Berlin, because there were no cars, because there was no money for them, and there wasn't the technology to, with which to build them. Uh, the Ladas, the littlest cars, were built by the Czechs, who were always the technologically most advanced country in, in Central Eastern Europe. Uh, the Wartburgs were kind of a knockoff of the Volvo. And then when you got to Moscow, you had the Chaika, which looked like a 57 Chevy. It was actually kind of cool. And then the big limousines were the Zills, which looked like large Peugeots. So almost everything was derivative and, of course, very scarce. Even if you wanted to buy a little Lada or a Trabant, which was the rock bottom made out of a, a Duraplast chassis, in which you could fit, it had a two gerbil powered engine, <coughs> and then you could fit a family of 12 in the boot when you were smuggling them across the wall. 
So this is pretty much the whole plot of the movie here. It's, it's not Bullet with Steve McQueen or the French Connection. Beschleunigen, yeah, accelerate. Uh, there's another little video that will give you a little bit of the, the flavor of the time, if I can. Okay, Psych presents. Yeah, okay. Wir übertragen euch eine hohe Verantwortung. Jederzeit werden wir euch mit Rat und Tat helfen, die sozialistische Zukunft zu gestalten. So this is the Jugendweihe, which is the kind of consecration of the young people to the socialist idea. This is the uh, invitation. Sehr herzlich laden wir Sie. We invite you very heartily, dear parents. And uh, I lost the plot there. But so now we're going to go in and we're going to see Aufgenommen Auf, which is recorded on Kodachrome 40, Western Technology. And now we have a typical East Berlin scene. Um, again, no cars. Uh, that's the East German flag. Here's some happy East Germans. And they're all going to hear a presentation about, uh, well, a kinder concert, a uh, celebration. You can see the cars there, too. These are very tiny cars, by the way, as you can see. Uh, they weren't very comfortable. They uh, were not built for long distance driving, certainly. But then in East Germany, you, there were no distances to drive. So you were pretty good. Uh, the socialism is our, well, our world. Uh, typical of the Soviet bloc were large portraits of leaders or people up in a kind of iconographic fashion. So this is a, a chorus of young women and girls. It probably wouldn't be better if the sound was on, but uh, you, you get the idea. No, there's no sound on this video, yes. There's no sound. Uh, I invite you all, if you haven't seen it, right outside this door in the display case is a number of artifacts from East Germany including some surveillance equipment that the Stasi, the Staatssicherheitspolizei, used on visiting Westerners like me, for example, and any other correspondents or people who were in the country. There are also some uh, Soviet-German friendship flags in the 40th anniversary of Deutsche Sowjetische Freundschaft. So that lasted two more years after that flag was uh, uh, created. Uh, there is a copy of Neues Deutschland, New Germany, which was the party newspaper. At the Wende, we have a complete collection of all of Neues Deutschland. So you can read the entire history of East Germany uh, in the actual newspapers of the time. So Germans love making speeches. They go on and on and on. And this is another one of them. Um, it has. You see, people are reasonably well-dressed, although Germans have no color sense whatsoever. They are completely challenged how to mix and match colors. And here's the kids getting ready for... Yeah. Uh, the, it's a conformist society, but it's really probably not much different from America at that period in terms of just how the people comport themselves and, and how their, the 80s haircuts or the 70s haircuts are pretty good. So. This is, a, this is what, what it looked like. Uh, so the kids are all getting 
congratulated by the teachers. And then there's a little bit of a banquet with the older folks. And here was a rockin' drummer. So, yeah, we have the swing music. Yeah, so we're listening to that, yeah. And here's some kids frisking and frolicking. Here's the grill. Just uh, uh, We're out in the mountains now somewhere. I have an interesting personal story about the grill. I moved to Germany in 1989. And, uh, because I was the American, we were visiting some neighbors, and they said, oh, the, the army here is going to be the grill guy, yeah, because the Americans, they know how to do the grilling. Yeah, I said, okay, so I'll give it a shot. And it was, uh, so he's getting ready. This, this guy's ready for his, his grilling. I like the big tire there, which is a, a, actually like a little sandbox for children. And there's the grill. State-of-the-art Weber technology, 19-something, 80-something. Uh, anyway, I cooked up uh, burgers and chicken and sausages, and the Germans all took them away and started eating them. And then they came back to me one by one, and they said, I said, how, how are we doing? And they said, yes, it's very good. Yes, it's very good. Uh, oh, we have just one request. Uh, what is that? Uh, could you possibly cook these things a little more? <laughs> uh, Germans don't eat anything rare, none. So this is the country that I first came to in 1985 uh, and found it Interesting, uh, tragic, uh, depressing, and yet the most depressing thing about East Germany to me was how hopeful the people were and how proud they were of their country. And it never insult them uh, by thinking that they, they weren't proud of their country, even if they wanted to leave it. Uh, they felt that of all the socialist countries in Eastern Europe, they had done the best possible job to create the best possible society, the highest form of technology. You'll see. The surveillance equipment, as I mentioned out there, uh, it will strike you as, as very primitive uh, for the time. But I recall going into the Volkspalast, which was the People's Palace. It's right on the, the Spree River in the middle of uh, downtown Berlin, which was then on the east side. And the mother of a friend of mine, whom I'm about to introduce to you, uh, took me there. And she was so full of pride for her country. And this is a woman who had been born well, she's now in her 90s, so you can figure it out. Uh, she had been a young woman when Berlin was taken by the Russians. Uh, she had lived through the Hitler period, the Nazi Zeit, or Hitler Zeit, as they say in German. Uh, and then she had lived under the Soviet occupation. And only near the end of her life, and as I say, she's still, she's still with us, um, did she realize the advantages of freedom. Uh, a mixed blessing, let me uh, emphasize. We heard this very spirited and, and quite elegant defense of socialist principles this morning, and we're going to hear them again this afternoon. Uh, they did the best they could with what they had. But I want to bring you back to that night now. I was not there. I was in Munich uh, watching the news, and when the news broke, uh, I got into my car and drove up. Uh, it's about a six-hour drive on the Autobahn from Munich to, to Berlin. But uh, I had become friends with a young man my age at that time, mid-30s, uh, named Victor Homola. And Victor was attached to the East German press office so that when journalists like me uh, crossed Checkpoint Charlie, 
he would meet us and act as a translator, facilitator, set up interviews, etc. He was also the liaison guy for the New York Times in Berlin. And after the wall came down and the country was unified, uh, he became the bureau manager of the New York Times and only recently retired. So I asked Victor, who couldn't come to join us today, alas, um, to write down his reminiscences of what happened that night. Uh, so let me uh, just set up Berlin a little bit for you, those of you who haven't been there. It's the biggest city in Germany, uh, not only population-wise, but in terms of area. It's quite big, and Germans are not an urban people. They don't like cities very much, and they tend to be very green. The Green Party's big in Germany for a reason, which is that they don't, they're, they are protecting the environment, the Umwelt, is, which is a very poetic word in German. Um means around, Welt means the world, so it's kind of the the whole ecosphere when they talk about the environment. Uh, they restrict growth, uh, urban growth, so that, for example, where we lived in Munich, there was a farmer's field in the backyard. Even though the city had grown around the farmer's field, that, that was not going to be developed for any kind of high-density housing or any density housing. Uh, and yet Berlin was so big and so sprawling that it, it takes you a goodly long time just to drive from the middle of Berlin, which is a district called Mitte, uh, all the way out to the west towards Wannsee, where the infamous Wannsee conference took place, at Dahlem and the parts of West Berlin that the American army occupied after the war, the most elegant, beautiful houses uh, in Germany, actually. Uh, to the east, you were going towards the Polish border, and uh, that moves around a lot, as those of you who know history uh, are aware. Uh, so Berlin is now relatively close to Poland, and, and before the, uh, the, the division uh, of the country after World War II, the, the German border met, went much further into the east, and a whole province of Germany, Prussia, vanished. Uh, Prussia had been the dominant power in all of the German states. It was the one that united Germany into a country in the 1870s, uh, and yet it utterly vanished after World War II. Uh, which brings me to the larger point that what seems permanent is very impermanent. And when it happens, it happens fast. It's a, a stunning thing to have lived through this particular epical change in the world history because nothing seemed more permanent than that wall. It was 12 feet high. Uh, from the west side, it was covered with graffiti. I'll, I'll never forget my first uh, impression of it. I was driving towards Checkpoint Charlie which is uh, when, you, when you went to East Berlin from West Berlin through Charlie, you actually went from south to north. Uh, and, you, and I saw the wall for the first time, and it was all gaily painted and decorated. And I saw written across it, let's see who gets this reference, tiny purple fishes run laughing through your fingers. Anybody know what that reference is? It's Tales of Brave Ulysses by Cream, which was a the super group with Eric Clapton and Jack Bruce and the late Ginger Baker. And someone had written that line from that song. Uh, and I thought, wow, this is, it just struck me as extremely poetic. And, uh, and I fell in love with Charlie in a way that uh, uh, is still inexpressible to me. It was, it was mystical, it was magical, it was dangerous, it was creepy, it was just something you will never see, uh, you'd never seen before and you will never see again. When you went through the wall, <coughs> you were on the other side, and the wall was pristine, of course, because there was a long strip, the Todesstreife, the death strip, 
uh, in which you would have been machine gun shot, uh, chased down by dogs, electrocuted, etc., had you approached the wall from the east side. And the Germans that escaped through the wall usually did so, uh, well, they did it many different ways, but being crammed into the engine compartments of Trabis, or somebody ballooned over it once. Uh, they were very inventive, but just on the western side of the wall near the Brandenburg Gate, which you've all seen a million times, and the Reichstag, which is right next door to it, uh, there is this row of crosses for everyone who was killed fleeing the wall. And the, <coughs> the Germans would shoot them even if they were over on the west side. They, did, they didn't respect the border uh, at that point. So anyway, I asked Victor to give me his thoughts on that night, and here's what he wrote. He said, after months of accelerating political erosion, uh, and this is important, the regime simply collapsed. It imploded. No one was truly willing to rescue it, not even the security forces. Even without the opening of the gate at Bornholmerstrasse, which was a, one of the checkpoints, for, uh, the East Germans were in a, a good mood that night. What had been happening was that summer, the uh, Hungarians had opened their border with Austria. Uh, the East Germans had been flooding into countries to which they were allowed to travel. And one place they could go without any passport or visa restrictions was Hungary. So they had flooded into Hungary. They had flooded into consulates, foreign consulates in Leipzig, which was the city we saw in the, in the Driver Ed film. Uh, and they were just there, and, and no one knew what to do about it. And the East German government gradually became paralyzed. So they opened the border uh, crossing at, in Austria. And I lived in Munich, so I got in my car and I drove over to that border crossing because I wanted to talk to the East Germans that were coming out. And I will never forget the sight of people coming out of these little trabbies and just abandoning their vehicles, crying, kissing the ground, literally, uh, so stunned at being out of jail for the first time in their entire lives. It was tremendously moving. And you could see that this was a tide in the affairs of men that was not going to be denied. And so that whole summer, this thing degenerated. So now we get to the night of November 9th. Shabowski, uh, Günther Shabowski, who was a, a East German party official, had declared at his press conference, broadcast live by uh, uh, German Democratic Republic television, not only that visas could immediately be obtained for unrestricted traveling, but also that there would be free democratic elections very soon. Chancellor Kohl, Helmut Kohl, the West German Chancellor, who was in Poland, quickly appealed to the East Germans on TV to think very carefully about leaving their country under the new hopeful conditions and promised economic support in case free elections would be held. I must say, Kohl uh, did a, an amazing job for a man that was suddenly handed half of a country uh, and basically expected to absorb it into a prosperous capitalistic state. So the general mood was, we will be able to travel, which was the East Germans' main demand. <clears throat> we, the voters, will have a chance to vote independently, reform the GDR. They didn't want to destroy the GDR. They wanted to fix the GDR. We heard some of that today, and I hope to ex we'll explore it more uh, in the panel this afternoon, and make it a better place, and there will be support to fix the economic problems. The economic problem is very simple. The East German mark was worthless just as the Soviet ruble was worthless. In the Soviet Union, when we would uh, travel around, the unit of exchange was not the ruble. Uh, it was a pack of Marlboro cigarettes. And so you would 
uh, board your flight to Moscow, and you would load up cartons of Marlboros. And what you would do with them is one pack of cigarettes was one unit of exchange. So you would hold up fingers if you needed a ride. Everybody was a freelance taxi driver. And if you held up two fingers, that meant two packs of cigarettes, which they could sell on their own black market for a lot of money internally. And you would get a ride. So a black market economy had grown up uh, between the West and the East. And the East German market was worthless. And yet, when the country was reunified, it was a big political issue. But the West Germans said, we will trade your marks for ours one for one, which was an absorption of an enormous amount of debt. It cost West Germany a tremendous amount of money uh, to do that. And, but the Aussie, they needed that to make clear to the East Germans that they were welcome and that their money would be uh, worth something when they got to the West. So. Unification was not on the agenda at that point. November 9th, 1989, when leaving the press conference, all journalists received this teletype printout of the GDR's wire service. Uh, and he's, the teletype is here. And Victor says he folded it up, put it in his pocket. Why? I did that when Gabi, that's Victor's wife, and I stood in front of the gates of Bornholmerstrasse, border crossing, shortly afterwards. I read the wire report out to the officers. The officers, the Germans had layers of different police. Uh, at the border were the Grepos, the Grenzepolizei, the border, literally the border police. The other police in, in the city would be the Fopos, the Volkspolizei, the People's Police Department. But the Grepos were in charge of checking your papers. I read the report out to the officers, showed it around to other people standing in front of the gates, and gave them a briefing on how I obtained the printed news. My friend Victor had actually been at the press conference. And I'm going to read you the pertinent points of that. And I constantly pointed out to them what was written in the wire. Mit sofortiger Wirkung im Kraft gesetzt, which means this is to take place effective immediately, which was the thing that brought the whole country crashing down, uh, as you'll see in a minute. So uh, he, he and his wife were allowed out by letting them pass through. And we were allowed to run across to West Berlin in a small group of a dozen people. However, not before Gabi asked an officer, can we come back? That's a very interesting question, because they could have said no. And they would have been homeless, stateless. Uh, and he replied, sure. Years later, we've learned from Deputy Border Crossing Commander Harald Jäger that this was not sure at all. <laughs> Vetting, this is a district uh, on the west, in West Berlin, was deserted and dark. One small car drove by slowly and stopped. A curious student asked what happened and offered to give us a tour of West Berlin. Hey, yo, want to see the real, you know, the Kudam? Uh, that's very generous, I replied, but... If you know where the Kempinski Hotel is at Kudam, please drive us there as soon as you can. That's the elegant hotel in West Berlin, very near the bombed out Kaiser Wilhelm Gedächtniskirche, which was left in ruins after World War II as a memorial to the Germans not to start anything again, which is why Germany is highly pacifistic today. 20 minutes later, we knocked on New York Times reporter Serge Schmemann's room and brought him the stunning news. Uh, Schmemann, uh, I got to know too. I, since I knew Berlin very well, 
uh, while all this was going on, Serge, uh, I, I wound up as Serge's uh, driver for a while and translator because he didn't speak German, uh, as we drove all over East Berlin in the middle of this, this chaos. So that's how the New York Times got the story because its contract correspondent in the East got through the wall and did the thing that a good reporter should do. He went right to his boss and told, told him the news. Uh, here's what happened at the press conference that afternoon. Uh, Shabowski, what was I forget this is his exact title, he was a, an official in the, the uh, Communist Party, the uh, Socialistische Einheitspartei. So he's holding a big press conference in front of lots of people at uh, the International Press Center around uh, 6 o'clock in the evening. So this happened at night. That's also important to remember. And he said, a decision was made today, as far as I know, a recommendation from the Politburo was taken up that we take a passage from the draft of the travel law and put it into effect that regulates, be it a nice word or not, the permanent leave, the emigration from the republic. This was stunning words. I, I cannot emphasize to you, it's as if you've all been in jail your entire life and somebody said, oh yeah, today we decided that maybe if you want to leave jail, you can. Uh, first of all, you say, what's the hook, right? What, what's the catch? Uh, and because the Germans were fleeing out through third countries, uh, he went on to say, we find it an unacceptable situation that this movement is taking place across the territory of an allied state, meaning Hungary, uh, which is not an easy burden for that country to bear. I, I was speaking to, uh, I go to Hungary every, almost every year to talk to uh, people there and in Budapest, and I was talking to a group of Hungarians, and I said to them, in my opinion, the greatest heroes that nobody knows are your border guards the day that you opened the passage into Austria. I said, because one man with a gun said, I'm not going to kill that person. Oops. One man with a gun decided not to commit murder in the name of the state. And whoever that guy was, and they, they can kind of tell now from the unit manifest, those were the real heroes of the end of Soviet communism in the East, the man that didn't shoot. And here's the most important statement. Und deshalb haben wir uns dazu entschlossen, therefore we have decided, and German is filled with reflexive verbs, wir haben uns, we have decided, but we have us decided. Like, I'm gonna get me a hamburger. It's, uh, some of that still exists in English, mostly in Texas, I think, but Deshalb haben wir uns dazu entschlossen, heute eine Regelung zu treffen, die es jedem Bürger der DDR möglich macht. This is, this we are now going to promulgate a new rule that will affect every citizen of the German Democratic Republic. Übergrenzen Übergangspunkte der DDR auszureisen, that you may now cross the border at any border crossing. It is now to leave, ausreisen travel out. And the journalist said, und wann wird das? They all want to know, when, and when, uh, effective when? And he, uh, Schabowski says, bitte, what? And they said, up so forth, immediately. And he hunted for a moment, not quite sure uh, exactly what his authority was to say. But finally, they continued to pressure him. 
uh, over a minor point about passports. And so the journalists finally said, Wann tritt das in Kraft? When does that take effect? When does it become uh, uh, the law? And he said, Das trifft nach meiner Kenntnis, in my opinion, ist das sofort, immediately, unverzüglich, without delay. And boy, that room emptied. Because this, this man had just said, you can leave without delay. And so they wanted to ask one last question, which is classic German in a way. They said, uh, you, you've only mentioned uh, the Bundesrepublik Deutschland, West Germany. Uh, what about West Berlin? And this is key. West Berlin was uh, an island. Berlin, as I mentioned, is a big, big city. West Berlin was half of it. But it was entirely surrounded by the German Democratic Republic. So it was, the West Berliners could get out but the East Berliners couldn't get into West Berlin. That's why the wall was there. That wall was there to prevent the East Germans from getting onto West German territory. So that's the place they did not want their citizens to go. They could go to Hungary. They could go to Poland. They could go to other socialist countries in the area, but not West Berlin. And so when he said, then he answered that, and he said, uh, someone said, is this good also for West Berlin? You only mentioned the Federal Republic, and he says, also doch, 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 means in German, ja, ja, yes, ja, doch, doch, you hear this all the time, doch, doch. Also doch, doch, ständige Ausreise, ja. Permanent immigration, yes. And that was that. This is how fast uh, it came down. Now, just a few, my own reminiscences, as I say, I got there a few days later, and I went back two or three times. It was a slow process of dismantling the wall. It was a spontaneous thing. Uh, people began to hit it with sledgehammers, and people crawled up and over the wall. They were hoisted up to the wall. The grepos uh, started to take off their uniforms um, and hand them to people. So I got somebody's hat. I don't know who, but somebody, some grepo hat is uh, in my house in, in New England, uh, along with some other souvenirs of that night. Uh, it was not the liberation of Paris. It was not a big gigantic street party with you know beautiful girls and delicious red wine. It was it was Germany after all, so uh, a little different. But and but but the mood I would say was cautious. Uh, no one was sure whether this would be revoked. Uh, no one was sure that someone wouldn't open fire again. The 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 fortitude of these young men uh, in the in the Grepo not to open fire, and they had been trained to do, they killed without compunction if someone was breaking through, but it was almost, as, as Victor points out, no one at some point was willing to defend it anymore. That, as I've often told my students, one of the problems with any delusional idea is that when the gap between what they preach is true and what you know is not true, you know it is not true, when that gap gets too far to bridge, that bridge falls in. And suddenly, reality strikes. My own feeling is that when people understand the monstrous, phony climate change thing that is being pushed upon us now uh, by the Greens, uh, strictly as punishment for the lifestyle that we lead, uh, that too will collapse. And 
perhaps the mural of Greta Thunberg will come down in San Francisco instead of going up. But that's just my own particular pet issue about the madness of crowds. There's a book from the uh, 19th century about eight, late 18th century and early 19th century, Extraordinary Mass Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And my friend in Britain, Douglas Murray, has just applied that title, The Madness of Crowds, to his new book, which is about some of these social issues, uh, specifically uh, sexuality and our changing ideas that men can be women and women can be men, and it's a matter of choice. And uh, he is uh, a gay British conservative who has taken a very strong, rational line on what he considers the madness of crowds. Well, the, the madness of crowds in the East Bloc was this notion that you could, uh, the beatings would continue until morale finally improved, as the saying goes, and that you could beat sub, uh, into submission a sense of liberation and joy. And as much as the East Germans tried to make this work, and they did, and I want to give them the credit for that, uh, they could not in the end do it. So Marx had said, as you recall, that the revolution of the proletariat, the dictatorship of the proletariat would come in Germany, where he was from. But instead, it came in Russia, in the most backward and only semi-Western country in Western Europe. But the realization that it couldn't work came in Germany, which had been, up until the Hitler time, the most civilized, most technologically advanced, most artistically advanced, most philosophically advanced country in Germany. But finally, even the Germans couldn't con continue to believe and convince themselves that this system could work. And, and it wasn't just, again, this is now anecdotal because I spent so much time there, but I, I mentioned in the speech here at IWP a couple of years ago, my takeaway memory of the East was not so much how it looked, which you saw, uh, gray, colorless, uh, dirty, uh, the coal-fired uh, plants, where the environments were onto something there, because you would come back to the West with your Greta card, it would be covered with soot, just covered with soot. And they were breathing this every day. The, the sunrises were these bright red orange, and the sundown was blazing because of all the pollution in the atmosphere. And, and one of the things that West Germany did, and did correctly, was to correct the horrible pollution of the Soviet bloc countries. I recall driving through Poland, Czechoslovakia, and seeing bodies of water that were green and just absolutely awful. And the reason was not because they hated the Umwelt and they wanted to destroy it. They didn't have any money. They didn't know what to do with this stuff. They didn't have the technology to properly deal with the pollution. And so they just put it in the river. Uh, that was one of the things that finally convinced, especially the Germans, who are, after all, tree worshippers, as the Romans at the Teutoburg Forest discovered, much to their distress. Uh, the Germans uh, are very, very environmentally conscious, and I think environmentalism actually did help to bring down uh, East Germany. But it wasn't just the look of it, it was the smell of it. And uh, as, when I was a young police reporter, I covered a fire in which somebody died, and uh, those of you who are journalists and have seen that or covered it yourself will remember that you never get the smell of a fire out of your nose. It's, 
a combination of stink and burning stuff and plastics, and then the water logging, and then if someone died, the, the smell of charred flesh. It has a unique odor, and uh, so, so did East Germany. You could, you could have dropped me down there blindfolded, and as soon as I smelled it, I would have told you where I was. And, and after a while, it becomes dispiriting. When uh, I worked for time in the, in the late Raj period of time, the glory days, uh, we did not let our bureau chief stay too long in any one country. This is similar to our problem with the State Department, uh, that sometimes our representatives go native and think their job is to represent that country to America rather than America to that country. And they start to make allowances for things, and they start not to notice things. And the journalist needs a fresh eye and always needs to ask himself, why is this happening? What is going on here? Uh, but for a long time, our press believed what the agency and other uh, government officials in Washington told them, that this was a first world country, that this was the, the East Germany was the, you know, the linchpin of the Warsaw Pact, and that things would never, never change. And yet, some of us who came in not laboring under any of those delusions said, hey, the emperor has no, no clothes on. He's naked. Uh, and then within. The wall came down in November of 89, and uh, I was in, in Moscow in the, uh, August of 91, and then the tanks rolled on the Russian White House, and Yeltsin was waving the Russian flag, not the Soviet flag, and uh, a few months later, it was all gone. I must say that, uh, personally, I was a great fan of the Soviet national anthem, which was the greatest national anthem of all time. I still get goosebumps. <coughs> whenever I hear it, but I don't miss much uh, about that country uh, other than that. So that's what it was like that night. We didn't know what was happening, or that those first week, two weeks. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't know if, if they would try to stop, if the empire would finally strike back, and it didn't. And uh, let me leave you with this thought. It's, it's about the human spirit. Uh, those of us who work in the arts, as I do, uh, write novels, write screenplays. We try to animate our characters to be as real as possible. We try not to proselytize through them. Uh, we try to make the bad guys as good as we can and the good guys as bad as we can because that's not what we all are. Uh, and we try to see things with as clear a visionary eye as we possibly can. And I think that reporters need to do that. I think diplomats need to do that. I know very well that the IC needs to do that. Uh, we have to see the world as it is and not as we wish it were. And if we take away one thing from the experience of communism in the East was that they wanted the world to be as they wished it were and could not, in the end, bridge the gap between reality and fantasy. So I'd like to take any questions that you have now. And uh, uh, that's East Germany for you. And it's, it's no longer here. Thank you. John, would you would you say a few words about your time on the on the Russia desk uh, when you were in the Reagan administration? Yes, please. Yeah, I think that would be great. John, there's a mic there. John, you were on the NSC at that point, and also in the at state, right? Well, I I was um, in the National Security Council. Of and 87, and at the State Department before then. 
and uh, I, had, I had left the government, but I was consulting with the State Department's Human Rights Bureau when, uh, about the time the wall came down. Um, my, uh, what I was working on in, in the National Security Council was uh, an attempt which had a lot of support from the President of the United States at the time to connect with the peoples of the Soviet Empire. We worked uh, very intensively on public diplomacy, which is the jargon term for relations with people rather than just with governments. And uh, the, the, the Cold War was, some, was a war that was not going to be won uh, on the, the kinetic battlefields through, through uh, uh, you know, guns and rockets. It was, a, it was a war of information, of ideas, of two different philosophies of life, two different conceptions of the relationship between man and the state, uh, two different principles of the legitima, le, le, legitimacy of, of state authority. And, and there were a number of, there was a big clash in the US government uh, and in the Sovietological community uh, uh, about the, the future of, of, of the communist world. Uh, there were the, the larger number of people, the vastly larger number of scholars and policy experts were convinced that the Soviet system and the Soviet Union itself was a permanent feature of the global political landscape and that really was not going to go away and that therefore our policy necessarily had to be to accommodate to it uh, or else there was a risk that we would be blowing uh, each other up on the nuclear battlefield. Um, there were others of us who believed that there were so many things about this system that were contrary to human nature that it, was, uh, that it had to change eventually. Uh, the way the Soviets said that there were so many internal contradictions mm -hmm. in capitalism, well, there were some of us who believed there were lots of internal contradictions in socialism, including That's a, a Marxist the, term. The exa term. Exactly. Yeah. And um, not, not to mention the fact that there arose in this, this system what Milo Vangelis called the so-called new class, uh, which was the class of... of, of, of party leaders and senior managerial officials who had all the privileges and had access to the best Western goods and so on and so forth that the rest of the people uh, were deprived of and were even unaware were for sale uh, in, in uh, you know, on, on the 10th floor of, of, of high-rise office buildings in, in, in the communist cities. Um, Can so, I just interject here? Yes. We used to call those the Beryoska shops in Moscow, where you yes. could go with valuta, i.e. real money, not rubles, and buy Cronenberg beer and Havana cigars and all kinds of goodies that were denied to the people. Exactly. So um, our strategic purpose was to try to connect with the peoples of the Soviet Empire to make them feel as though they were not alone because the, 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 the principal method of the rule uh, of, of these regimes was to uh, cram their people into a mold into which they could not fit, into which they did not want to fit, and, uh, and, but to 
have this, this, this policy of enforced conformity that was enforced by the internal security system of the state and, and, uh, and, and where, where not only did you have the, uh, the, the physical parts of the internal security system, and we know in East Germany a full 30% yeah. of the population were secret informants to the Stasi. We a might mention 30%. the film, uh, The Lives of Others, the slave uh, Sandrovan. Uh, it's all about yeah, that, uh, exactly. how you snitch your own neighbor out for some temporary uh, or political advantage. Exactly. And so this created an, an atmosphere of fear. It created the, the atomization of society where every individual was separated from everyone else uh, and, theref and, and would therefore stand alone against the all-powerful state. Uh, and then... Uh, the, the, I, the whole idea, and then all of this was enforced by political correctness, mm -hmm. by ideological conformity and the monopoly by the regime of all the, uh, the instruments of, of, uh, of communication and, and information and education, of course. And so uh, our objective was to try to break that monopoly of information and ideas uh, by connecting with the people and, and the first part of that was presidential rhetoric, where the president was the first one in several administrations to start telling some actual truth about the nature of these regimes, their oppressive character. And, 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 and when they started, when the president started doing this, and when he used the, even this expression, provocative expression, evil empire, this reverberated uh, as I like to say, in the dankest corridors of the gulag, so that people like the Vladimir Bukovskys of this world, the Natan Sharanskys of this world, all of a sudden had hope. And when you said the dankest corridors, I thought you were going to say a foggy bottom, of yes, course. No, yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, because we're, how resistant was the State Department to this message? Well, uh, there, the State Department has long had a culture that focuses principally on uh, on relations with governments as opposed to relations with people. And, and so uh, when I, for example, put forth a memorandum uh, when I was working for uh, Assistant Secretary Larry Eagleburger for the strengthening of our international broadcasters, the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, and Radio Liberty, uh, every single official in the department who was uh, supposed to be in a line position to uh, uh, clear my memo or oppose it. They all opposed it. Everybody opposed it. Can we also mention that when Peter Robinson wrote the line into the Berlin speech, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, they wanted that taken out. Yes. And he yes. had to fight to put it back in over and over and over. Exactly. Well, um, Assistant Secretary Eagleburger uh, nevertheless took the memorandum. Uh, Secretary of State Haig uh, USIA Director uh, Charlie Wick and, and Board for International Broadcasting Chairman Frank Shakespeare all signed uh, uh, one of the addenda to that memorandum which went to the president and we got two and a half billion dollars in order to strengthen the, the, uh, the signals and the programming of those radios which was a way of, of one of the the chief ways of, of, of communicating with, of connecting with these people uh, in, behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, these regimes feared the truth and they feared democratic ideas more than anything. 
because uh, these were because they ultimately were the sources of the animation of the internal security threat that these illegitimate regimes faced. Yeah. What, can I mention one yes. thing about uh, in my book, The Fiery Angel, which is a sequel to The Devil's Pleasure Palace, about cultural Marxism. So we'll be talking on that subject shortly. Uh, I mentioned my experience going uh, in Moscow uh, to the first Vladimir Horowitz concert. And that was set up under the State Department auspices as, as part of this cultural outreach. So Horowitz, being Russian-born, was going back for the first and only time. Uh, there was a mini riot uh, when they opened the door. In Soviet Union, you, know, you always open one door you know, to control, crowd control. Well, they burst through the doors. Uh, people ran through the halls. They ran up the stairs. And I was taking off my galoshes. It was a damp April day. And when I got to my seat, there were three kids in my seat. And I said, OK, the really pretty girl can stay, and the other two guys got to go. But <laughs> Well, you know, I was young in those days. Uh, but no, I, we had to move people out of the way. There was so many excess capacity that at one point I thought the whole balcony was going to collapse. But the, the effect on the people is what you're saying. People were crying. They were weeping. The old people were weeping. The young people were weeping because they saw in this strange, mad, genius artist hope for what Russia had been and maybe what it could be again. That's exactly right. This, this was a matter of the spirit. This was, uh, you know, uh, ultimately a, a conflict. Uh, you know, Alec Alexander Solzhenitsyn described it very well in his, especially in, in his Harvard speech, A World Split Apart, where he, he basically said that the Cold War is not simply between the people of the East and the people of the West. It is a war between you and yourselves. Mm. Uh, it was a war within the Soviet Empire. Uh, it was a war within the West. And, and then he said, the, the, the world split apart in many respects is, is the, the split right down the center of the human heart, where on the one side of, the, of, of, of that human heart, you are ready to live and, and acknowledge the existence of a natural law. Some people would call it a divine law. Uh, the, the existence of a transcendent objective universal moral order in the world, and the other side of your heart wants to create its own moral order and be and, and where you want to be your own God. And so the and, and, and this is this is fundamentally what the Cold War was really all about. Well can I interject here, John, that uh, in the poem, uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of the poem Paradise Lost and uh, the root of this is this speech by the devil, the serpent. Uh, when he's inviting Eve to take a bite out of the tree of knowledge. This is not, not just, you know, any old tree. It's going to uh, change her life. And he says, Ye shall be as gods. Ye shall be as gods. Why let God have all the fun? And you're down here naked, uh, hungry. Uh, so if you take just one bite and you, 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 you counteract the divine rule, but you will be as he is. So it's jealousy a part of that sure, too. Sure, it is. You know, this is this is this is what it's all about, and this is what the culture war is in in the West. It's all, what what it's all about today. It's a war between those who believe there's a transcendent, objective moral order, and those who don't. Yes. Uh, questions, Louis. Louis Morano, please. Uh, I'm puzzled why we are not. <coughs> 
It's a very good point. It's an it's an excellent yeah. question. Um, I think it is partly because uh, the the uh, the foreign policy establishment in 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 this country doesn't care about public diplomacy, doesn't care about relations with people. Why not? Because uh, first of all, it is the the cultural. Uh, it, it, it is the, the culture of the Department of State where being good at public diplomacy is not rewarded with ambassadorships and deputy assistant secretaryships. And so it's not, that's, it's not that uh, uh, there are, you know, th there are lots of people in the State Department who understand the importance of public diplomacy, but they're not in a position to roll the behemoth over enough inches uh, in order to to create new incentive structures and and to request the proper funding and national strategic attention that that public diplomacy deserves and uh, it, it requires political leadership and it requires I think a wholesale reform of, of, of our foreign policy structures I've written a little book about it if you'd like to see it it's called <laughs> full spectrum diplomacy and grand strategy I, I once thought about calling it how to reform the State Department but uh, oh but that's ridiculous yeah. it'll never get reformed no, no but it it, it, it it might one of my solutions is to create a new a variant of the US information agency which was shut down. Uh, in the Clinton administration in 1999 in a fit of unbelievable absence of mind. Uh, and, uh, it, it, and I would call it a U.S. public diplomacy agency, and I would make it an empire within the State Department. I would include USAID in it. I would include the Voice of America. I would include bureaus like human rights and the women's issues and other things that relate the labor issues that deal with, with relations with people. I even have suggested considering putting the Peace Corps in this empire, although there are good and wise arguments against doing that. Um, but my, my reasoning is that if you had an empire like this within the department, made its director a deputy secretary of state, made that director a statutory observer in the National Security Council with the same rank as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the director of national intelligence, but then all of that could be disregarded. The only thing that will really make a difference is if you change the career incentives, and that means to make 50% of all of the Foreign Service occupied ambassadorships and deputy assistant secretaryships have to come out of from personnel who have spent the larger part of their career in that agency. Mm. And then you will have, so whereas, so you will have professional diplomats who have to have skill both in dealing with governments as well as professional diplomats who will have skill in dealing with people. And, and I, there, is, there, there are uh, important people inside this administration, actually, for whom these ideas uh, are very appealing. The problem is that there's been a lot of uh, personnel turnover and, uh, and many positions have not been filled. It has taken three years for, uh, for this administration to try to fill the directorship of the U.S., the new, newly named U.S. Agency for Global Media, which is the new name for the what was called the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which uh, houses 
The Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, the Middle East Broadcasting Network, Radio Farda, Radio Radio Marti, etc. And um, and and still, that director who has been nominated has not been yet approved by the Senate. It is just a complete national scandal, and and so there is no strategic leadership going on, and uh, and and it's because there happens to be one senator who has put a hold on all of this, and there's insufficient pressure by the administration and the Senate leadership to uh, uh, to change that. And that's just one. That's just you know, one very noteworthy public diplomacy agency. I wonder if sometimes that, that the United States dissolves, the State Department will somehow survive the collapse of the country. <laughs> we have a real quick run, if you don't mind. Who is the, uh, which senator is holding that up? Your friend is the nominee. Yes, Senator Menendez. Oh, yes, that's, that's what Jersey. my understanding, yeah. yes. All right, we'll take a break here. Uh, we have half an hour. The panel will start at 2, so go take care of your needs, and we'll see you back here at 2 o'clock. John, thank you for coming up and thank you. impromptu. Thank you so much.